if someone had told me I was going to be giving a lecture on the history of Palmerston North um, in my previous life, I think I would have just said, oh, yeah, right. And let alone the fact that it, the fact that it was Palmerston North and the fact that it was local, because I think that as an academic for many years, I swallowed the characterization of parish pump history uh, and regarding it as limited, par uh, partial, parochial, and so on. Um, until, I suppose, uh, people like Tony Ballantyne showed the potential for um, the very local, and has, in that case, Gore, to illuminate the more general. Um, later in my career, I was busily trying to internationalise my research um, through collaborative international projects like the Johns Hopkins um, uh, International Non-Profit Sector Comparative Project and uh, the Red Cross history, which took me into uh, quite a lot of international history. So um, this has been quite a shift for me and, and I must say a very interesting and um, helping, I think, to revive my interest in history, which could have flagged a little bit in retirement. Um, the other issue, of course, that, that I think I swallowed was the idea of Palmerston North and its history as necessarily being boring. And one of the lovely things about this project is to find out that indeed it was not. Um, the images up there uh, on the left, um, uh, the Palmerston North shunting yards and the square in the background heading, looking out towards the east. Uh, why I've put that up is, is it was a very significant image for the history of Palmerston North, the fact that the railway line went right smack through the centre of the city with a little bend at one point where they put the cenotaph in in the, I think it was the 1920s or 30s. Um, and the shunting yards were there right very close to the, to the centre and caused all sorts of problems. But it also gave me the opportunity to tell a rather nice or well, sad story about shunter Thomas Carmichael, who met a rather sad end when he was crushed between two carriages um, in the shunting yards and thereby prompted a, a commission of inquiry into shunting, in Palmerston North in particular, but also more generally. Um, but this was a time, and, and this inquiry showed that there were 100 trains a day going right through the centre of Palmerston North, um, as many as, say, 1,400 carriages in, into a shunting yard which only had parking space for about 570. So many of them would have to be moved day and night. It was ongoing. And um, so the, the railways was this, this fundamental part of, of the city until the 1960s when the railway line was moved to the outskirts to Milson. Um, so Palmerston North is actually a pretty filthy place for much of its history, um, soot is part of its history. And many, it's one of the things people talk about when you ask them what they remember about the railway line is you know, going up into the ceiling and finding a great pile of soot in their house if it was nearby the railway line and uh, others remembering that they had, say, an uncle um, who was a train driver and they'd make, they'd make a point of you know, racking up the, stoking up the, the fires so, so as to uh, let off as much steam and sort out into the environment as they could when they passed through to hack off the Palmerston North housewives who had their washing out. So there's interesting stories like that. They're based on the railway line, which um, I think have got a lot of potential for further development. And the other is the Palmerston North Clock Tower, which is 
uh, quite often a feature of images of the square in Palmerston North, even though it was actually a post-World War II edition. And the whole story about the cross that went on the top, which was not originally there, but uh, there's a, a lot of debate as to whether now a multicultural city should be having a, 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 a cross on top of, of its clock tower. And here we've got three um, electricians fixing up the lighting around the clock, obviously in prayer position. But the photo I would have really liked was that there's an absolutely wonderful one which delighted the godless of Palmerston North when the wind blew the clock the cross on the top sideways. So there's a really fantastic image of the clock tower with the clock sort of, sorry, the cross on a lean, uh, which I would have loved to have used in the book, but I couldn't find it. Um, so coming to the history of Palmerston North, uh, I came to it in retirement. Um, I'd been on the Historic Places Trust. I knew quite a lot about historic buildings in Palmerston North, but not a great deal else about its history. And then I was asked to give the Minor Mackenzie Memorial Lecture at Tamanua. Uh, Minor Mackenzie was a previous, one of the founders of Tamanua. And um, I looked at some of the existing histories and decided with Jeff Watson that we did have a space there for um, a new published history of some kind. And the predecessor volumes I've noted there, um, Peterson's one that was written for the um, 1970-71 centennial celebration actually came out, as many such um, planned histories do, in 1973. Um, and Ian Matheson's Council and Community, which was uh, for the anniversary of the Palmerston North City Council, and which he, again, it was a, quite a long-term project and he died before it was before its end and it was finished by Dorothy Pilkington. Um, these were both quite long-term projects. You know, Peterson had been working on, he'd done a little history of Palmerston North that came out in 1952. This one took at least 10 years and then went over time. Um, and they were both by historians who had decades of immersion in, in the city's history. Um, there was also, uh, by this time, the Manawatu Journal of History, which... Uh, both of its editors have been retired academics, so it's, it's got a solidity and, and I think a credibility about it, and uh, it now has 15 years of publication behind it. So there's a whole lot of material in that which I thought we thought needed somehow to be integrated into a larger story. Um, hundreds of local studies of specific topics like, and you'll all be aware of that, and the Turnbull staff especially. Uh, when, you, when you go to the shelves, there's just... Masses of school histories, uh, business histories, and so on. Uh, there are a few, some messy research exercises. These were done more often under Bill Oliver and then myself. One of the problems with Massey as a university producing historical research is that it does have that strong extramural component in its students, and that includes now the postgrads. So you don't have a nice little cohort on site that you can do, as, as Bill and I did, to set to work on um, local history topics. But uh, nonetheless, there is there's, there's a nice range of certain things, um, you know, from movie, the movie going in Palmerston North, the cooperative movement, uh, some on politics, radio broadcasting, the river, um, some of the social services. So they are there, even if they're not perhaps as... Um, as generous as, as you like in uh, those in some other university cities. Um, but there is a dearth of information about the post-World War II period, and I think that's true. You know, the pioneering period seems to attract 
um, research far more than the recent past, which of course is more difficult to deal with. Um, and what we decided was it, was it was perhaps time now to join the dots, to create a sort of synthesis of what was there and supplement that when necessary with uh, new research. And so that was uh, what we were aiming to do. And of course it was timely because around about 2016, Ben Schrader's book, The Big Smoke, came out, uh, which was a lovely book and provided us with a challenge, I think, to to um, go beyond the four main centres and to work more on the history of a provincial centre and a city that was part of what Ben calls the second wave of settlements um, after the sort of 1840s, 1850s. So our approach, um, we wanted to complete um, three to four years and I must say one of the things that the history group and the ministry have done for historians like myself and I think more generally and, and the whole notion of professional um, public history is that um, you've got to be disciplined and you've got to produce stuff. You know, the days of the sort of indulgent kind of study that could take a lifetime or um, 20 years to write the book, I think they've gone. We wanted this to be a fairly short, sharp history um, and we saw it as part of being professionals that we should do that and do it to a competent level, even if we didn't kid ourselves that we were writing the ultimate definitive story. Um, so that was, I think, the way we started. That's what we had in mind when we started. Uh, given that the other two volumes had been chronological, we thought perhaps this was a time to do something more thematic, and we were looking there at something like the... Um, Study, the collection edited by John Cookson and Graham Dunstall, Southern Capital on Christchurch. So that would involve you know, new primary research in particular areas plus knitting together. The question then became what themes, and I'll return to that. Multiple authors, mainly because neither Jeff or I felt we had the time to start from scratch and neither of us were deeply immersed in the history of Palmerston, although Jeff had done a great deal on the history of sport. Uh, so he was obvious to do one on sport and recreation. We mainly drew on Massey's staff, which turned out perhaps to be a bit of a mistake, and I'll talk about that later, only because university staff these days are so busy that sometimes extracting material from them is actually quite a challenge, and um, it potentially became a bit of a disaster. Uh, but we did have you know, people whose strengths we could play to. Peter Mehana uh, is uh, whakapapas to um, rangatane, though not to uh, manuatu rangatane, uh, which made him a bit uncomfortable. Uh, Mike Roach is a historical geographer, so he uh, has done work on forestry, a uh, good person to write the environment chapter. Jeff on sport. Helen Dollery had done um, doctoral research on voluntary organisations and uh, also at master's level. So um, that said, I ended up doing chapters on education and work on which I had not done a great deal before. We wanted a well-illustrated volume and we were very aware that anything else is probably uh, a no-goer these days. And certainly things like Peterson's book were, you know, small print, um, a cluster of black and white photographs in the middle. So we wanted to make it uh, attractive to the sort of readers who we knew were going to pick it up and flick through and perhaps just, you know, drop down on various points along the way. We wanted to be referenced, and there's mixed views about that, um, and if, you want, if you do a local history, how deeply you should reference. Uh, the Manawatu Journal of History, for example, its first editor, wanted it to be accessible and felt that meant not having references, and we 
we actually found that really frustrating because when we wanted to follow up on material from some of the articles, it was quite hard to know and, and to, or to check on whether what they said was right. So um, we, do, we did want this to be uh, quite deeply referenced. Also on the basis that well, stuff, if you couldn't put it in the text because you could only had a certain number of words, you can at least direct people where else to go to find out more. Uh, we knew that we had we a backup digital presence in Manawatu Heritage, which I'll mention shortly. Um, that's the uh, online repository of the Palmerston North uh, City Library, which has got some very good photographs now, but which is now starting to put up text in little essays. But most of all, I think we recognised that this wasn't going to be the last word. We didn't see it in that light. You know, we were aware many of our community historian colleagues start something thinking this is going to be the definitive story. At least working with academics, you know that's not going to be the case. And um, we would do our best, but we could keep on doing research subsequently and hopefully draw other people in to um, fill in the gaps. And also, we knew, although we were doing a fairly conventional thing, writing a book, that this isn't the only way of telling the story of place. So some of these other contexts, the Manawatu Journal of History, as I said, now going for 15 years. On the right is just a newspaper cutting from something that appears in the Manawatu Standard every Saturday, uh, a column by Tina White called Memory Lane, uh, where she often draws on things that she picks up, little stories from papers past, and people absolutely love that. And so this has been a lovely place for storytelling. She doesn't always get it right, but she does do research, and um, I've tried to persuade her to actually put them into a little collection. Um, be quite a big collection now because she's been doing this for a number of years. But it's something that's there. It's every week. People look forward to it, and it's that kind of small story that people can take in and enjoy. The Heritage Trust uh, calendar, which I chair every year, puts out um, a series of photographs, mostly taken from Manawatu Heritage, based on a particular theme, and we have quite a lot of fun trying to do short, sharp captions for them. And one of the things I'd also, I think, like to acknowledge from the the uh, ministry and the historians there is this, and, and Jock got us all thinking about this in the 1990s, was it, Jock, about caption writing. I think many of us academic historians didn't actually educate our students very well in how you write captions and in thinking about how you integrate them or supplement the text. So caption writing. On the right, um, a photograph of one of the Rangatani panels, uh, or telling Rangatani history, which have recently gone up along the, um, the Manawatu River. And uh, the, the Tangata Whenua history of Palmerston North and, and its surrounds is, is now much more being foregrounded within the city and by the Rangatani themselves, in this case, the Manawatu River Accord. And Manawatu Heritage, just the, this was the page that was up just a couple of days ago, photographs and increasingly text. And we recognise too that there's other ways of telling uh, the story of the city. In this case, there's a group called Toy Warbrick. Um, Warren Warbrick is, um, he can play a lot of Māori instruments and uh, they gave a performance at the Edinburgh Festival, which was quite an interesting way of taking Palmerston North history to an overseas context uh, through performance. And he actually did work at Tamanua and he knows a great deal about the Rangatane history of the area. And he's been quite prominent, I think, in foregrounding this notion of a bicultural beginning to the city. And that's why you've got photos of the first two Pākehā mayors of the city.
So the themes are there that we uh, decided upon, and as I say, there could have been others. Uh, Tangata Whenua, which um, Peter Mehana uh, developed, and because he felt uncomfortable as someone who whakapapad to another branch of uh, Rangatani, he brought Hone Morris on board and, of course, consulted with people like Wiramu Tiawiawi about what was written. One of the interesting issues there is about whether he was writing about Rangatane or actually about the Māori presence in the city. And we were, we were clear we wanted the latter and we didn't just want it in that chapter uh, because only about 5% of the Māori population of Palmerston North actually whakapapas to Rangatane. And there was quite a significant influx that came in um, sort of post-1960, really, from um, other tribal groupings. Um, and we felt that they had to also be uh, part of the story. Um, Mike uh, Roach looked at environment and uh, particularly both the natural environment but also the way the environment's been reshaped or as he put the vegetative cloak, decloaking and recloaking um, over time but also looking at things like lagoons, streams, the Manawatu River. But the... the um, human features, the gravel pits which pockmarked the city and, uh, as I said in the piece for um, fanzine, places in which children played, children died, children drowned, uh, a real problem for city planners and um, are now places where various city groups now are replanting, groups like the pit part people trying to make them attractive. Uh, places to go to. Russell Paul, who's actually a scholar of Old English <laughs> and uh, a medieval historian, um, has reshaped himself as a, as a local historian and is now editor of the Manawatu Journal of History, where we've now started to put in references again. Um, so he did looked at the city's expansion, Jeff Watson, political city. I did one on educating the city, um, picking up the idea of, there was this dreadful slogan once called Knowledge City that was around in the 1990s, which those of us who worked at the university always found a bit embarrassing, actually. Um, but it was going to be, just to show you how we had to reshape these as we went, it was going to be on education and innovation. I didn't have enough space to look at innovation, science, technology and so on. But I realised actually there were three volumes that have been done of collections of essays on the impact of science and important scientific de um, developments that are called Plains Science uh, that has a lot of that information that we could refer people to. I took over the City at Work chapter when Kerry Taylor, who's hugely into admin now, found he couldn't complete it, and that was a whole new area for me. I'm not quite sure that he'll approve of what I did on the freezing works, but um, I was going to drill down at three periods in time. I only had space to do two, and then supplement that with three case studies of workplaces over time. The question there is, you know, when you're looking at work, um, one of our local community historian readers said, oh, well, you haven't mentioned the important names. You've mentioned this person and your freezing worker, and, and where are the businessmen? And I, well, actually, it's a history of work. It's not a history of business. And so I felt OK about that when I thought about it. Um, and uh, so other, other chapters as well, which all had their own challenges. Uh, we did an introduction, which I framed, or Jeff and I framed, as a kind of the way the city had represented itself over time, the Chicago of the South, through to the modern slogan of... Um, uh, small city benefits, big city ambition, 
is the current slogan, but the history of a city through its slogans can be quite revealing as well. Um, the conclusion, because we did it thematically, tries to do a, a chronological overview to draw some of this together. The chapter I really, really regret, and if I were doing the book again, I think I'd delay publication and allow myself six, time, six months to, to write it up, was the one I'd been planning to do on The Divided City, and I'd started doing work on public nuisances. Um, but, but you can also look at things like the physical divide in the city, but as well as class, religion. Um, the, but the, I was really interested in just the little issues that rack people up, you know, dogs versus cyclists on the riverbank, no, complaints about noise, um, some of the stuff that went on on the city council. Um, that's still one I think I'd like to explore at some time. The question is, well, what about the, um, the things that we don't do? Uh, that we could have put in, the themes we could have had. I would have liked to have had one, or if I was doing another volume, on um, the city at worship, because there's really interesting points to be made, as Peter Lynham has elsewhere, on the unusually ecumenical basis of um, Palmerston North and its beginnings, but also the role, role of religion as it influences things like city council elections, where you've got a small voter turnout and a, a smallish population. Um, the regional city, I think we could have done more about um, the economics and also the political interactions of a city and its surrounding region. You know, the fact that Massey University is in Kairinga, was in Kairinga County Council, not in Palmerston North itself, caused all sorts of problems and uh, restricted the city's development um, beyond its, its boundaries. A city with, with farms where they're, they're absolutely paranoid about you know, marauding urban dogs being let loose on their farms and didn't want to see the city expand around its farms and so on. City at war is a possibility, though I do think the local military history crowd have had more than enough exposure in Palmerston North in terms of the poppy places, symbols all around the place. It would have been interesting to do one on the children's city, but um, this idea of Palmerston North is a good place to bring up a family. Was it, and what were children's experiences of cycling around the city, playing in the city, going beyond the city boundaries? Um, and as per the Cavisham program uh, project, I think there would be more to done, be done on gender in the city. Um, but a lot came down to what's accessible elsewhere, and. The question well, we wanted to answer was, well, what were the things that contributed to the city's uh, development and made it what it is today? Which brings us to the challenges that we faced. Many of us were relatively new to Palmerston North history, but that was also, I think, a plus that we were able to bring fresh eyes. We were often had more experience on writing on topics from a national level and looking down. I'd used the Palmerston North hospital records very extensively when I did my PhD research. Uh, I went back to them again uh, with some difficulty because privacy things have come about since then, um, and to, to look at the Palmerston North hospital as a workplace from quite a different perspective. Um, being academics, we also had to raise a question. We, we had to, I think, draw ourselves back from digging too deeply into the historiography, realising, and this is where the question of audience comes in, that probably the locals weren't going to be too interested in our, our fascination with the historiography behind some of the topics. So sometimes we just referred to that in a footnote. Team project with the usual challenges, and every time I do an edited collection, I vow that last time, please. Um, partly because I would sometimes write chapters differently, but also because people do work at different rates. And 
I'm a person who works very methodically, chapter, you know, put aside a certain amount per day and work consistently. I have to get used to people who just spew it all out at the end without getting into too much of a panic. Um, but also, as I said, that um, we had academic contributors who are very, very busy and uh, often can't work to the schedules that they might have been able to work to in the past. There were gaps in um, coverage. Interesting interactions with community historians because I had this kind of idealistic idea that we would be, we would have academic writers and we'd have <clears throat> community historians contributing as well. That didn't work out. I, be, I became aware that the local historians pretty much had their own projects, were going to stick to them, what, you know, whatever, and weren't necessarily working, used to working to deadlines of the kinds that we had in mind. So we did have a meet, community meeting where people suggested topics, which mostly reflected their current obsession, but not always. Um, and at the end, I did get chapters read by individuals with knowledge around certain areas, and all of them read by... Um, one community historian who I, whose work I really respect and who's published some um, very, very good books. Um, so that didn't quite work out as I'd hoped. Um, as always, I think, in writing community histories, there's a lack of secondary material for post-1930. Peterson's book, for example, uh, for the 1971 centennial kind of fades after 1930, except for one rather rushed a chapter or two at the end. Um, sometimes there's a lack of analysis of topics beyond the four main centres. You know, it's hard to, this question of exceptionalism, how different is your place from what happened nationally or from what happened in the four main centres? And I talked to John Cookson about that in relation to Christchurch, and I think he made the point that it's easier, I think, to talk about exceptionalism and difference in the early years of a settlement than it is subsequently when the national starts to um, impose more upon developments. Um, there are other issues about sources that I've noted there. Um, funding, you know, some of the other history projects that we looked up on, you know, they had huge amounts of funding. The Cavisham project, which, you know, over a million, or was it 1.4 million? Even the Canterbury Project had about 300,000 to do a similar kind of book to what we've done. We got 42,000 from lotteries, and that was mainly to, for research assistance, and then found it was actually quite hard in Palmerston North to get well-qualified research assistants who were operating under the same assumptions as we did, because all, a lot of the postgrads, I mean, again, it's the massy problem, they're not actually in Palmerston North, and the graduates, um, particularly many of the competent uh, women historians who graduated with masters and PhDs, they're all being used by Massey to do marking en masse. So every time a swag of essays came in, the work kind of stopped and it didn't necessarily mesh with our needs as uh, writers. So that was quite a problem. And um, we actually ended up with some money unspent that I'm now using on getting um, oral, some of the oral histories transcribed. And there's the question of audience, you know, the local. Um, we assumed that probably the book was going to, in practice, be purchased mainly by locals. So that's where we moved away from overtly hitting people over the head too much with the historiography. Um, and that comes down to lots of, that raises other questions. How much do you name people? You know, locals expect certain people whose names they've come across to be in there. They expect their family's name to be in there 
you know, at least once, at least to be in the index. And we were going to, I realised we disappointed a lot of people because I often, where I was talking even about, quote, ordinary people, I was talking about them in a generic kind of representative sort of way. Um, I wish I'd done more naming and photographs, but part of the problem there was we were drawing it together during COVID and there were some things I had difficulty checking. But the way you write and who you name and how you do it, and this comes back to Dorothy's comment on my work chapter, she's used to writing commissioned histories for businesses where you, you name all the big guys and, and the people who are paying your uh, salary and so on. And, you know, we didn't always want to do that. Um, and locally, is it a PR exercise? I'm not sure how. The mayor was really keen on this book um, and, has, and has promoted it really well. Um, bought lots of copies, which is great for Massey University Press. I'm not sure he necessarily saw it as being upbeat enough, though, about Palmerston North, and even the fact that we mention that it's sometimes been perceived as boring, often been perceived as boring, or that um, when that, they brought in an external person to do a review of the city as part of a national comparative project, he put Palmerston North in the middle of his, cre his Creative Cities Index. I don't think he was thrilled that we mentioned that. But it wasn't a promotional piece. Um, we're all people who know the place, we like it, we like living there, but we didn't see it as, as a promotional exercise. And the positives. Um, I think we, it did allow for a reasonably fresh approach and uh, we did a lot of research of a kind that isn't necessarily done by those who are doing community histories normally. Um, and all those other positives there. The one that I particularly draw out, we thanked Ian Matheson, uh, the first city archivist, and he was there for a number of years, for starting to collect community archives within the um, city council structure and then persuading the city council to allow that to be done officially because constantly I was able to move between the two kinds of records, the, the public record and the community. So I'm writing now about the 1971 centennial. I go from the city council files to the records that are in the community archive constantly and you can have those, those sort of conversations in your own mind about the different sorts of... Um, Sources. We were really lucky that the Fairfax images were also transferred to the City Council archive and we got permission from Fairfax to use them without charge, which they saw as they twigged the fact that there's a Sesquare Centennial coming up and it could be their contribution. So we didn't have to pay for images, which was great. Um, we were also aware that there's, uh, were other, there's other avenues for dissemination that I've mentioned before. Um, and we did think we played quite a positive role in integrating the previous research into these sort of survey kinds of essays, which may sometimes come across as a bit of one thing after the other, but they do knit a times, you know, 150 years um, of different topics and um, in an illustrated manner. For me, for all of us, I think it was really great to be studying our own community without PBRF imperatives in my case, to move from that, you know, the international publication that's going to bring you brownie points and PBRF terms to something which was new and it was doing something different and I wasn't just being asked to write about things I'd researched before for somebody else's academic collection. There's potential there too for school's history and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the syllabus finally plays out but I suspect we may have a resource here that's more useful or well, certainly not going to be of any use to school kids, I don't think, but it may be for teachers. 
on the whole, we had to constantly, though, I think, manage expectations. And this, and emphasise this is an ongoing story. We're not claiming this is the expert sort of, uh, our only source that people should go to. The end game, we were very fortunate the book was taken up by Massey University Press, which is, although it's based in Auckland, they have a particular interest, I think, in products from the local area and by Massey staff. Um, most of the chapters were, had to be reduced. Um, the longest one that I got was 15,000 words, which was reduced to 8,000. So a lot of stuff that was researched had to go. Um, the 15,000-word chapter, Mike Roach isn't here, as he ended up with the longest set of footnotes in the book, unfortunately, but um, it's a way some people get around these problems. Um, the audience, uh, we had to grapple with that question, as, I, as I've said before. It was finished during COVID, the chapters were brought together. Um, a lot could be done electronically, but there were some things that couldn't, like some of the... Um, some of the checking, I know I've I made at least one mistake in an in a illustration caption where I identified the vice-chancellor of Massey University when it was actually the pro-chancellor. And I still swear, if I'm looking at the person, it's the same guy, but he's clearly, I didn't know my academic regalia well enough because he is wearing the pro-chancellor's gear. And uh, the chancellor of the time couldn't wait to rush up and tell me my mistake. Illustrations, there's about 150 in the book, really easy to get because of cooperation with the Palmerston North City Archive. They just, you know, I would ask for high res, put them on Google Drive, they would do it, except once COVID kicked in, they couldn't do it. They couldn't access their own electronic systems. So when, for example, Massey Press has what I regard as a slightly irritating tendency to design books with these opening images that run off over one and a half pages quite often, but it means you need a particular resolution. So we had some fantastic images chosen, but when it came to the production stage, they couldn't be used in that way or they had to go elsewhere in the chapter. And it was So we often couldn't use our preferred image as the opening image, which was a bit of a pity. But just one of the ways that COVID emphasises things like that. Choosing illustrations... You know, you can make quite a political statement around the images you choose. I'm vegetarian, so the, the bit on the Longburn freezing works or on the the the, um, the first freezing works, I, I didn't realise how quite how confronting some people found this image, for example, um, which was deliberately chosen. I will admit um, to show the unsavoury, the reality, if you like, of of a town who's got an industry based on animals being killed. Um, the Longburn one is actually even more gross, one of the um, intestines room and the intestines that were later made into sausage skins. Um, so you can use choose illustrations with that kind of political purpose. You can use them to simply illustrate what's really in the text, or increasingly, because we had to cut text, we used them to put additional information um, that supplemented the text rather than simply complementing it. Uh, so the caption writing, that obviously challenges here that all of you, those who've written histories, will know about these days because we're expected to illustrate them and illustrate them well. We went for minimal appendices, unlike the history of the Palmerston North City Council. We felt we had things like lists of mayors and that are quite readily available elsewhere. Um, we didn't have a bibliography because we felt we had quite full referencing and I didn't feel there was a need for a lengthy bibliography. People could follow up on particular lines of inquiry. We did have a, 
statement about some of the key works. Then um, the link with the sesqui, we didn't actually write it as a sesqui volume, but then we found the mayor picked up on it that it was being done, and uh, he kind of saw it as a sesqui output, and which wasn't bad for Massey Press because it meant that he committed to buying quite a large number of copies. Um, but it certainly wasn't um, written with that in, in mind, but it has helped, I think, sales. Then we had the question of the cover and the title. Um, the title, uh, you know, one always grapples with titles, and um, Massey Press wanted us to have Papaoya, which is the Māori label given to Palmerston North by the, is it the Geographic Board or whatever that has done this kind of work. So we put out inquiries with some of our rangitane contacts and, contacts and came back with a rather muted response that maybe this wasn't a good idea. First of all, Papaoya is actually it's not perceived as among Māori as being the name of the, the city as a whole, but of that particular clearing around which the city developed, uh, which is part of the square through to the um, eastern side of the city. But also, Papaoya has other meanings that are, shall we say, ambiguous, and which many, many rangatani actually prefer the transliteration Pamutana as the name for the, the city, the transliteration of its um, English language name. Title, uh, that, so that's title cover decision. Uh, we were really keen on having uh, a painting or something in colour. Massey Press wanted the more usual, I think, thing it's been doing with black and white photograph collage, which they've done actually on the hard cover underneath, without, to my puzzlement, any lettering whatsoever, even on the spine. So let's hope the beautiful, very beautiful cover, uh, dust cover, stays with the, with the volumes. Um, and we toyed with a number of, of paintings, but then one day, as I, uh, I quite serendipitously went into the art gallery, which I probably only do two or three times a year, I'm afraid, and they had some of the holdings from its own collection in, um, up in their you know, wooden frames, um, just as a kind of casual exhibition. And there was this lovely painting by John Coley uh, called Around the Square from 1999, which turned out to have a great story attached to it. So uh, I mention that in the book itself. Success, how do you gauge the success of a book like this? You can do it on sales, and certainly Bruce McKenzie's books in Palmerston was thrilled at the initial rush anyway. Um, reviews, most of them are yet to come. There, were two, there was one, I think on News Hub, a rather sarky one by a former resident of Palmerston North who we obviously didn't put a version that tied in with his memories of the place. Uh, Paul Little pointed out in North and South, and just a short notice really, that the boring part of Palmerston North is the elephant in the room. And, and that's true, we knew our book was always going to be judged. Is it a boring product from a boring place? The, the word boring is always going to be the elephant in the room. Um, Academic responses, and I've had some messaging, very positive, and, and the nicest one was from a historian who's done a lot of local history who said, bravo, bravissimo, at which point I decided to follow Bill Oliver's advice, don't read any more reviews, you've had one nice thing said about it, so go no further. Um, the cover, I think, was a great success. Um, everyone loves the cover. Um, 
But sometimes it's the individual responses I've had from Palmerstonians. Our neighbour is a real, he's often quite grumpy about people, he talks about silly bastard this and silly bastard that. He came up to me and said, I said, Margaret, that book of yours, I said, oh no, what's he going to say? I haven't mentioned this. He said, oh, it's bloody good. He said, I want to tell, can you tell me where I can get a copy? I want to give some to my mates. And I thought, oh, that's great. But then the be even better thing was that it got him looking into his own materials and he gave me to give to the archive his own father's record of what he was paid in his various jobs over 40 years, a little notebook in which every, every week or month he, wrote, he put in his earnings, and then all these family photographs of workplaces and his mother, who had been a forewoman at the Manawatu knitting mills and so on. Otherwise, you know, ourselves, I think it was for us, we got hooked on the local. Um, it's made me go through the city looking very differently at a place I've lived in for a number of years. You know, I recognise things in my landscape that I'd never seen or appreciated before. I realise why it's pockmarked by all these deep hollows that, you know, now have schools built around them or bowling clubs. And I realise that that's where gravel and um, uh, Thing, other things were extracted. There was, there was such a pronounced extractive industry that left its mark on the physical side of the city. Um, I think that it's also been contributed to my own development as a historian. It's been a very satisfying project, and it's prompted me perhaps to go back to that image of the railway line I showed first of all. I think there's a great space now for a history of a city like Palmerston North that looks at the railway and that its social history, its economic contribution, the politics around a railway line, when it's there, and what you do with the land after it's gone. Things like housing, the dirty city, the accidents, the workplace accidents, and so on. So that, I hope, if i am still got the energy for it, is my next project. <laughs>